Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. On Commons People this week, Boris Johnson's Huawei Gamble. It's absolutely vital that people in this country do have access to the best technology available. Brexit finally happens. And I approach tomorrow in a spirit of some considerable melancholy. I very much regret the division which this country has faced. And how does Britain realise its potential? Well, when you see the brilliant science and business happening in the north, it would be nuts to cancel HS2. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul Wall. Hi Arj. Hi Paul and we've also got the Conservative MP and Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Tom Tugendhat. Hi Arj. Hi Tom, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks. Busy week? Back. Yeah well it, it was uh, it was pretty busy until about seven o'clock last night and then I got a result which meant that uh, things are going to get busier in a different way which is uh, great news. <laughs> yes you were re-elected the Chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee as we've just noted but also this week Boris Johnson defied Donald Trump's demands and gave the green light for Chinese tech giant Huawei to play a role in Britain's 5G infrastructure. The decision has prompted criticism from a lot of very senior Tory MPs, including yourself, Tom. Let's have a listen to one of them, former party leader Ian Duncan Smith. We have a cyber war going on with China. They are constantly trying to break into our systems. They are constantly trying to put misinformation about. You know, the GCHQ knows that, the whole system knows that. Therefore, it slightly beggars belief that whilst we know that they are trying to mess with our systems as a nation, why we're using an organization that itself has deep and strong connections to the government in China uh, and therefore is involved also in their secret state apparatus. Paul, it felt like a big moment this week. It did feel like a big moment um, in lots of ways. Um, it's a big moment for UK-US relations and we can go through that, but also a big moment for UK-China relations. And as far as the Americans are concerned, from my point of view, what was really interesting was we, this has been long telegraphed. You know, we'd been, the pitch had been rolled quite successfully by Number 10 and by the security services to say, look, we were going to do this, and actually let's get all these arguments out of the way first, and then let's just wait and see if there's any eruption from, from the White House. There was no tweet. From the, from the president. There wasn't any instant reaction. Mike Pompeo so far has been incredibly diplomatic. Um, and I think it's probably the first time that someone has properly stood up to Trump uh, uh, in a way that actually has managed not to see him lose his temper. And I think that's interesting. You can give the PM some kind of credit and the diplomats, I'm certain, some kind of credit around all of that. And certainly the security services. Um, for the fact there hasn't been a backlash. But what is interesting about it and why it's a big moment is that um, it's it's curious that the Prime Minister's decided to listen to his intelligence chiefs and, and, and make that actually, that whole argument about security. And we were told this is a security reason primarily, not a commercial one. They keep, and we can discuss that with Tom. Is this really about, you know, trade or is it about security? Um, 
And we certainly, I got briefed along with other colleagues from the security people that actually look, this argument that there's in any sense going to be intel, intelligence sharing is going to be jeopardized. It's a completely different secure encrypted network, complete red herring. And what I thought was really strange was the way some Americans were still pushing that as an argument that it was so obviously not true. Why, why would GCHQ or any of our intelligence people say, put that at risk? They wouldn't. That's the last thing they want to do. So I thought it was a bit strange that the Americans had overreached themselves on that argument first. And, and, the, and the, the lack of a backlash suggests actually it was never true. And we were told, certainly by very, very senior people who cannot be named this week in a briefing, that they were never threatened by their counterparts with any withdrawal of uh, intelligence sharing of Five Eyes. Never, ever. Um, so you park that as one argument, and then you come back to, well, is this really all about the fact that, yeah, that Huawei got into Britain really early in 2003, and the problem is we've found it very difficult, very expensive to get rid of them ever since. I mean, I don't know. And there's a bigger issue about what we say about UK-China relations, but we could do that first with Tom. Tom, you've been really critical of this decision. Why? Well, I've been really critical of the presence of Huawei in the UK market. And I recognise this government wasn't the government that made the decision to allow it in. That was done in 2003. And, you know, it's gone from a very early stage uh, when BT did the deal back then to now, depending on the network, up to 70, 80% of the 3 and 4G network is Huawei. So depending on which supplier you're with, so Vodafone, Telefonica, 3, and uh, there's another one that I've just forgotten, uh, who who all have uh, different uh, networks running here. They all use a different amount of, of Huawei technology, and indeed, if you look at the 5G network currently, you know, most of that, most of the Vodafone network is Huawei, uh, most of, in fact, I think it's all the 3 network is Huawei. So, you know, we're dealing with the situation we really shouldn't have got into. Yeah. Uh, uh, and Dom Raab has been using the term market failure, regulatory failure. All of this is true. And my criticism is not that the government has found itself in this situation. That's really not the government's fault. My criticism is that I haven't yet heard that the flight path is to zero. At the moment, I've heard that the flight path is to 35%, which, you know, as I say, that is a hell of a descent. And that's great. And that's a really good direction, you know, direction of travel. I've also heard, because if you read the supporting statements that went with the written ministerial statement yesterday, that there are ways through diversification, through all the uh, different ways of encouraging new entrants and so on, that the flight path can get to, you know, 25, 20, 15 and so on. But I want to hear that the aim is zero because there isn't, a, a safe number. And the reason that there isn't a safe number isn't because there is a, you know, some sort of breach in the five, uh, sorry, in the five eyes secure network. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with the fact that today we generate, all of us generate, increasing amounts of what's sometimes called digital exhaust. The sort of trail of noughts and ones that you and I are producing at this moment as we're recording onto this uh, laptop. But once it's out there. You know, you can delete it, but it's never really deleted. You yeah. can you can erase, but it's never really erased. Now, that's pretty simple because we've agreed to sit here and record into a microphone that happens to uh, do that. But actually, while we're sitting here, our phones are talking to a base station. Now, they're all talking to a base station at the moment, and so 
somebody can quite easily find out that the four of us sitting in this room, because there is also a sound guy who's, who's sitting very quietly and not saying a word. Um, John, perennial producer. Yeah. There you go. And the um, so so long as the four of us are sitting in this room, then you can work out that the four of us are sitting near each other, but you can't quite go to the exact room. 5G is different because 5G takes you from communicating via the base station to communicating through the Internet of Things. And as that happens, as the car speaks to the traffic light, as the meter speaks to the, you know, to, 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 to the passing uh, checking van, as the, as the fridge talks to the... You know what I mean? All these Internet-enabled devices that actually start communicating with each other. You're not talking about producing, you know, 1x or 2x the amount of data. You're talking about exponential levels. And that change, that real change, is where you start to get security risks that are not to do with, you know, sharing what the name of the agent is or, you know, discussing an operation in Iran. You're talking about getting the kind of granular data about individuals that sees them able to be exploited, able to be influenced, able to be you know, manipulated by someone a long, long way away. Now, we've already seen this, you know, funnily enough, we saw this uh, a little bit with Uber in the very earlier days. I don't know if you remember, but there was talk about um, Uber's then CEO uh, either threatening or actually, I can't remember whether it was just a threat or whether he actually did it, uh, to journalists who'd been critical of him. Uh, working out which ones had been staying away from home the night before. I think that's a polite way of putting it, isn't it? <laughs> and because he he could see their Uber data and that they'd taken a Uber from somewhere that wasn't their home to their home at sort of 6, 7 in the morning before going on to work. Right. Now, imagine being able to do that for literally everybody in the country. And that's where you start to get into the level of uh, concern. It's not about the secure systems. The secure systems you keep secure. I mean, that's... It's about the, the whole nature of it. Now, the truth is that that network is so wide and so open that it's not as though you know, replacing Huawei with Ericsson keeps you safe. It doesn't. But in purely military terms, if you're going to have to fight an enemy, it's probably wise to try and choose the terrain yourself. And it's certainly not wise to allow the enemy to construct the terrain on which the battle will be fought. Fair enough. I mean, the interesting thing I thought when we were being briefed about all this stuff is that it was made absolutely clear to us by the experts. Look, um, we, we get, and it's, I think it's clear in the written ministerial statement, I think it was clear in the House as well, that this is going to be introduced, and if it, when it is introduced in 5G, Huawei's presence will be kept away from sensitive sites, is what we were told. So nowhere near a, a, a Faslane nuclear subspace, nowhere near a power station, and big problem with that is that whoa hold on a tick we were suggesting well clearly there is a bit of a more than a little bit of a risk there so if it's good enough it's for ordinary punters yeah. but not good enough for near Faz Lane then what's going on well, and the more important point is that actually and this is the wider point about China we're allowing the Chinese to partly build Hinkley Point nuclear power station they've got for, forget 35% for Huawei in 5G 33% right now of Hinkley Seed Station is being built by the Chinese uh, nuclear power company. That's happening. They want to go to Bradwell and Essex. They want to go to other sites. And yet there's no... Why is there... So we're worried about wires and mass near a, a nuclear power station, but we're, we're willing to allow the Chinese to literally, literally build to a Chinese specification a nuclear power station. And that, to me, is something that's not entered the debate. 
Chinese are desperate to invest in HS2. Yeah. Um, we can talk about that later. And it's the, you have to go back to the whole question. What is our strategic relationship with China? And well, how does it work in commercially and militarily? Well, Paul, you'll remember this is what we were working on in the Foreign Affairs Committee in the last parliament. And indeed, our last report, which is a, 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 bit, of a, a bit of a short report because it was rushed out because of the election, was on uh, what we call democracies and autocracies. How do democratic countries deal with autocratic States. I mean, the obvious one, of course, is China, but actually you can, you can list a dozen or so more, where the influence of autocratic states, sometimes dictatorships, um, is growing. You know, whether you see that in the British university sector, whether you see that in the uh, legal or property sector, whether you see that, as you rightly say, in the investment sector, we're seeing a whole series of moments where we're having to take uh, decisions. And we don't have, uh, we haven't really thought through the full implications of all of these choices. Now, that's one of the reasons I'm hugely uh, grateful that the government has set forward the idea of having a foreign defence review, a, a real one, because too many of the recent foreign defence reviews have actually been defence reviews based on a budget. So given that you have X amount of money, what, do you, what, what can you get for it? That won't work anymore, I'm afraid. I mean, you know, It's seen us through OK, because actually the world has been you know, structured in a certain way. But the reality is we are... Uh, in competition, perhaps even in conflict, with many countries around the world today, not in a military sense, no, but uh, in terms of uh, cyber conflict, in terms of economic conflict, in terms of, you know, the, the cooperation of the 80s and 90s isn't there anymore. Uh, and though there are some wonderful examples of cooperation, and the, I think particularly of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, for example, uh, there are other areas where we're not dealing on a level playing field. I mean, I'm certainly interested in what you were saying about 5G and you not having 5G around fast lane, given that quite a lot of this being rolled out through broadband uh, networks. So if you want a three 5G network, you plug it in at home. Are you going to say to people within whatever it is, 100 yards, 500 yards of a site that you can't have that? Well, we're within 500 yards of the MOD here. Can you not put 5G in? You know, you're starting to ask yeah. very difficult questions. Yeah. yeah, Boris Johnson couldn't even have his own Huawei 5G if he was still Prime Minister and whenever his own, it's his coming own in. Phone. Yeah, his yeah. Well, Huawei I, phone. I think it would be unwise. <laughs> but, well, anyway. but, so, come, but, but the interesting question is, yeah, you're right, Tom. You and lots of others say we want a glide path down towards zero. Um, we want that, and the government haven't yet said that. But how prepared are you and your colleagues to push this? I mean, how, how far do you want to go? I mean, there is talk about a possible rebellion when the legislation comes before the House. Uh, that may all seem far too premature. And from your point of view, you don't want to get to that stage. But at least the very threat that there are substantial numbers is what will may change them to, to rewrite that legislation and amend it to put zero in it. Paul, you don't, you don't have to ask me that. You just have to look at uh, when I asked an urgent question on Monday, how much support there was uh, for that, uh, for, the, for the aim to zero, right? It, it's perfectly clear whether you're looking at our benches or indeed the SNP benches have been extremely clear about this. And even some of the Labour benches have been very clear on this, uh, despite the current dis distraction with the leadership. You know, this is not something that's particularly controversial. And I have to say, what's really struck me is, um, you know, I put a few things up on social media and the support for uh, the position I've been advocating has been really pretty universal. So this isn't something that I think is terribly controversial. Now, I think, as I say, that the supporting evidence that goes, or sorry, the supporting papers that go with a written ministerial statement point in the direction that I'm aiming for. But what I need is I need the government to make that explicit. Because 
it's not about me. It's not about convincing me. It's about convincing companies that the decisions they are going to make today are ones that they are either going to have to pay to change in a few years' time or they can invest in for the long term. And that's what I'd like to see. I want the government to be absolutely clear so that the head of whichever telecoms operating company it is thinks, hey, I've got a choice between these various suppliers. If I use Huawei, I'm going to have to take it out in three or four years. And does absolutely clear mean writing that glide path into law? Well, it may do. Um, I mean, there's various ways of making things clear. I mean, for for very obvious reasons, this is Parliament. People uh, assume that the law is the only way to change actions. Actually, that's not true. The main way we change actions is by uh, discussing ideas and having ministers making positions and intentions very clear. Now, actually, by the way, the government has already made quite a lot of this clear in the various ways it's uh, funded investment into the future 5G technology. It's very hard to get licenses for these experimental uh, sites if you're using uh, high-risk vendors. You know, this isn't just about Huawei. There are other high-risk vendors. You know, this this is already happening. But I think making these positions clear is really important because it allows businesses to make decisions that they can then be held accountable to. If, however, we change our mind or you know we flip the law in five years' time, then some of these uh, companies may have a claim against us in, in the sense of saying, hang on a minute, I invested on the basis of this policy and you've changed it and now I want compensation. If we made it clear from the outset that we are aiming for zero and your investment choices are based on that, then shareholders will start to ask CEOs pretty clearly, why did you buy that tech? Why did you buy that? Right, well, we must move on. Yep. Fascinating though it is. Uh Amazingly, this is the second item (laughs) on the podcast, but uh, Britain is finally leaving the EU this week, but it's far from the end of the matter. Yes, we can look forward to another torturous year of negotiations with another approaching cliff edge. Giva Hostat was one of many speakers to mark Brexit as British MEPs took their seats in the European Parliament for a final time this week. Let's have a listen. It is indeed a sad issue. Sad to see a nation leaving, a great nation that uh, all of us have given so much, I mean culturally, I mean economically, I mean politically, even its own blood in two world wars. It's in fact sad to see a country leaving that twice liberated us, twice given its blood to liberate Europe. Paul, it's finally happening. Is everything going to be okay? Well, is everything going to be okay? Um, well, you won't see much change, obviously, uh, straight away. And I think the really uh, crunch point will come later in the year when we it becomes clearer what our free trade deal is with Europe. Um, we're going to find out at some point early next week what the European so-called negotiating mandate is, see how hardball they're going to be. And I think we'll find out what the UK's... Uh, equivalent response is going to be early at some point early next week. We, we know the Prime Minister is making a big speech early next week, and it'll be interesting to see how much detail there is in there. Um, I think that uh, the big question still remains you know, it's obvious we can't have frictionless trade, and the government doesn't want frictionless trade. There's been this myth that under Theresa May that we can have frictionless trade. Um, now, maybe it was possible under her deal, but, but that deal was just not sellable to the Conservative Party um, but certainly what Boris is Boris isn't even offering that he's saying and I think he said it overnight that look 
there are going to have to be some kind of trade-offs. They're going to have to be checks. They're going to have to be um, for us to have divergence. That's really, really important. We want divergence, he says. The big problem, I think, is, yeah, but what about business? What about you? It's all right. Politicians saying we want divergence. Well, that should come from business, shouldn't it? If business wants divergence, it'll let you know. So far, it's not shown any inclination for any divergence, certainly not in goods. Um, it might be the case a little bit in the, in the, in the financial services. It will be interesting to see what they want. But that's what it's going to come down to over the next year. How much do we align? How much do we diverge? And if we do diverge, whether there's any appetite for business to then take it up. And, and if there isn't, what damage is there for jobs and livelihoods and growth? Tom, you, you've been a, an ultra realist throughout this process and you kind of got it right right until the very end because you thought we'd end up with no deal, but then we we didn't. We just got the deal uh, kind of snatched from the victories of jaws of defeat, victory from jaws of, of defeat. How do you see this playing out now? Well, I think that there are, I mean, I, uh, I think that there are real opportunities here for a really hard look at what the European Union is going to do. The problem is this requires quite a lot of internal uh, exploration by our European partners just as much as it does by the UK because there's a real question mark here and there are implications for everyone um, as to how we see if, uh, you know, the relationships across this continent. Now, you know, we, we, we can get wrapped up in various elements uh, very easily and Certainly, talking about the trades, you know, there's various different forms of trade, as you know, Paul and, and Arj. I mean, there's there's various different things that you can um, talk about, and you know, certainly Mark Carney has spoken about uh, various reasons why we may wish to diverge in some of the financial markets, and other people have spoken about why we may wish to be aligned in goods markets. So there's a there is a range of options here, but this is going to be one of those moments where, of course, it's down to the UK government to help shape the negotiations and help shape the tone in which these negotiations are held but this is a real a really difficult moment for everyone on the european continent and and everybody has got something to gain and something to lose uh, if we get this right uh, then everybody will have a smooth relationship that will endure and you know, it'll, it'll vary from there you know some things will get closer some things will get further apart if we get this wrong then then there will be pretty severe implications for everyone so this isn't just a test of the UK, as it were. This is a test of uh, the European Union, the European Commission, and the 27 member states. And do you think Brexit inevitably diminishes Britain's influence and role in the world? No. No, not at all. Um, you know, Britain's influence and role in the world is determined by the way we choose to engage, not just with uh, others, but the way we choose to shape ourselves. So, you know, I see uh, our influence in the world as much shaped by... Uh, how we run an education policy and apprenticeships, uh, how we invest in infrastructure, how much we're willing to talk about, uh, you know, climate change and energy transformation, uh, as it is about sort of military laydowns or, or, or trade relationships. You know, I'm very keen that we, uh, you know, now that we're leaving the European Union, that we we join the sort of the, the, the new independent nations, independent trading nations, countries like Japan uh, that have shaped in many ways uh, the, the the way that uh, independent nations not in major political groupings so I mean you know uh, the, of which there are of which there are plenty as you know um, uh, and the way in which they operate in these sort of new indies if you like they, they they offer a bit of an example 
uh, and an opportunity for us to engage. And that, I think, suggests that you know, joining organizations like CPTPP or uh, talking about how we engage at state level uh, on services in, across the United States, so you know, trading, doing direct service level agreements with the state of California, for example, or the state of New York, uh, demonstrate how you know there are a range of areas that we can uh, engage in, and and that will change the nature of our engagement in the world. But it doesn't, you know, that's that's the opportunity. And are you sad to see us leave? Uh, uh, look, uh, my personal opinion has always been that if there's a an international table, Britain should sit at it. We are a great power, and we should have our voice heard in every uh, in every chamber uh, that shapes the world's agenda. And uh, I've always been. Uh, extremely proud of Britain's influence in the world and and our ability to uh, dominate and shape uh, the organisations that we've joined and you know, none more so than the European Union, which in in many ways is is Thatcher's creation. Um, you know the single market uh, that uh, th- that really is the defining bit uh, for many countries now is is Thatcher's child um, more than anybody else. Margaret Thatcher created it. Um, you know. Yes, it has gone awry in different ways, and I understand that uh, votes have to be respected. So I, you know, I respect the uh, the decision of the British people, and the, and I don't think that it is in some way a binary. Um, you know, one is good, one is bad. You know, there are there are challenges and difficulties to both choices. I'm afraid that's just life. There are. Now I'm going to be at work at the moment. Britain leaves, and people might be listening to this afterwards. So you'll be in this building. I'll be over here, yeah. yeah, listening to Nigel Farage's rally out there. Uh, what are you guys doing? Celebrating? What am I going to be doing? That's a very good question. I thought I might just watch it on the TV and see what's on TV, whether or not there's going to be some light show or whatever, just to see what what they're actually going to do. I mean, there isn't going to be a. Is there going to be a fireworks show? I don't uh, know. I mean, Tom, you going to the number ten light show? Look, I've got a five-year-old and three-year-old. I'm going to be in bed. You'll be watching CBBS. I, I will be. I will be asleep. You're kidding. Nine <laughs> o'clock at night. I'll be out cold. <laughs> I did love that line from Marc Francois, though, didn't he? He said he's going to stay up all night because then he's going to see the sunrise on a, in, in a free country for the first time in his life. Yes, Steve Baker said he'd be melancholy, which is free country the first time in his life. Uh, people have their own views, but I've, I've I've always been proud of the fact that Britain has never been uh, never been dominated by foreign. Anyway, <laughs> I'm I'm going to stop there. Uh, well, a big part of Boris Johnson's mission to get Brexit done was also to unleash Britain's potential, in his words, and we can expect that work to get started pretty quickly after Brexit. He's expected to approve HS2 within days, then carry out a cabinet reshuffle with the Chancellor's first budget coming in March. But Tory splits over HS2 began to emerge at PMQs this week as Kevin Hollenrake urged Johnson to go ahead with it. Let's listen. Does the Prime Minister agree we need to increase capacity in our railways in and between the North, the Midlands, the South and Scotland? And unless we want decades of disruption, the only way to do this is through the Midlands Engine Rail, Northern Powerhouse Rail and HS2. Mr Speaker, I I can tell uh, my honourable friend that we are not only building the Northern Powerhouse Rail and investing in the Midlands Rail Hub, but as he knows, we are looking into whether and how to proceed uh, with HS2. 
Paul, we're expecting HS2 to go ahead. It's a big decision, but he's got some bigger ones coming up. A lot of big decisions this year for the Prime Minister. Um, I mean, to be honest, one of the biggest, well, the, the most immediate one, obviously, is the reshuffle. What does he do about um, shaping government and Whitehall? Does he does he have some sort of new super ministry for infrastructure? Does he do, who knows what he's going to do about that? So I imagine, well, you'd hope rather than imagine that he's got a plan for that. Unfortunately, as I wrote this week, the problem with the Prime Minister is he doesn't seem to have a plan for much. I mean, there aren't many plans around. Uh, there are What there are are occasional ideas floated in Sunday newspapers by various aides, but it doesn't amount to a plan. Um, and that brings us to the, the thing that he really needs to sort out, which is social care. Um, there's been some encouraging news overnight on that. It sounds as though... Um, this idea that I think we've talked about of auto-enrolment, which has been a massive underplayed success of Britain in the last few years. Auto-enrolment for pensions, brilliant idea. Cross-party consensus. Young people now, you know, they, it's a matter of course they see that taken from their pay packet and it goes towards a pension. Um, if you can do something similar for social care, that may be one way of doing it. Um, so people have a, a, an automatic buy into their future. They just have to take that hit when they're a bit younger. Um, if you've set the precedent for, for pensions, why not set it for social care and, and something like that? Um, so that's not a bad idea if that goes ahead. Um, but we've yet to see any real detail. So that's a, certainly a big issue on his plate. The reshuffle, I think, will be interesting because you will always make enemies in a reshuffle. And Prime Minister obviously loves to be liked and he spent all his career liking to be liked. He's, we've seen over Huawei, he's been prepared to annoy some people. He's going to annoy some people over HS2. Um Will he annoy a sufficient number of people in this reshuffle to maybe start the kernel of a sort of group of people think, hold on, what's life like after Boris Johnson? That's We're way too early. We're early in a parliament. He's got a majority of 80, so I'm not going anywhere near the suggestion that he's not, not popular when it's about benches. Of course he is. He's just won this resounding victory. But, you know, that's how things start um if you i mean liz truss who reportedly wanted to run for leadership herself and then was reassured no you're you're fine with me boris's camp said if she's axed in this first reshuffle what will she be like andrea ledsom there's lots of people um will will he stick with moggy you know would mog go off can he risk it uh i think all that stuff could be interesting Uh, just not necessarily just amongst the in terms of sheer gossip of what we're interested in about personalities but the, the direction and shape of the government. You know, what does it say about the government? That's what the reshuffle will be interesting in. Tom, how do you think it's going to go, the reshuffle? What do you think he needs to do, Boris Johnson? I've got no idea. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not one of the intimates of number 10, so I'm afraid I don't know, I don't know what's going on uh, in uh, there. But on your patch, there's talk of merging the, the Foreign Office and DFID. What do you make of that? Well, I've been, I've been very supportive, as you know, of um, bringing together the overseas arms of government so that we work as well at home as we do in our embassies around the world. It, it's been a constant struggle um, for those of us. You know, I was in, I was in the Ministry of Defence for a number of years before I was elected, and, and it's been a constant struggle of, of many people working in Whitehall to get coordination across Whitehall, um, as good as it is when you go to missions overseas. And so that's that's something I'd really like to see. Now that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you have to have the same email address and and, and same permanent secretary of state. It, it also, you know, other ways of doing it is simply to say that the foreign office or whichever department provides strategic oversight and direction to others. That doesn't mean you want, you know, ambassadors driving aircraft carriers, but <laughs> you know, you do want 
diplomats to have at least an overview as to what uh, our fleet is doing around the world. Uh, and the same is true with you know trade and aid and many other areas. So I think that some form of coordination, some form of uh, alignment is a good idea. That can be done as uh, Andrew Murison does, for example, now, uh, by being a, the Africa minister, both in the Foreign Office and in DFID. So yeah. you know, there are different ways of doing this connection, this strategic oversight. Uh, but I think finding ways of doing it is is important. But if they abolish DFID or rather subsume DFID into the Foreign Office, would that send the wrong message, as people like Andrew Mitchell have been saying, that that it, it would undermine our? The, the reason I'm always sort of the reason I'm always sort of cautious about that is 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 because you know bureaucratic reorganisations can sound like action and simply be noise. Now, depending on what you're trying to do, uh, of course you might have to do some of that, but shouldn't you just get on with the job? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, there's been suggestions, haven't there, that, that the, the kind of ambition for a dramatic reorganisation of Whitehall has diminished somewhat in number yeah. 10 because they've realised they'll probably waste the whole first year doing it. Man, rather the than the cost and the civil it. service hate all that stuff because yeah. it distracts them, you know. Um, they like clear leadership, don't they? They just like to be told to get on with something um, rather than reshuffle the deck chairs. Uh, but, Tom, what, you're, what you seem to be suggesting is like a super-powered foreign secretary... Would that be accurate? Well, uh, you know, as I say, there are ways of doing this, and um, you know, you, you you can create you can create structures. But I mean, you've got to pick who is your principal spokesperson overseas, right? You've got to pick somebody, or or an organisation rather that organises uh, the strategic outlook for the United Kingdom. And you know, the NSC does it. That's true. But the NSC responds to the Prime Minister and. The Prime Minister is doing everything. So you, in a funny way, you know, answering to the Prime Minister means you're answering in some ways to nobody because it's very difficult for the Prime Minister to devote the constant attention to it. And what you want is you want somebody who has the ability to, to maintain, uh, maintain a constant focus on it. So you could, if you wanted, you could create perhaps a ministerial national security advisor to give them actual political power as they do in the United States and they do in other countries. Or you could uh, you could say that that's the role of the foreign secretary, as indeed it was up until the sort of seventies, eighties. You know that was their uh, role, and that's why the you know the, the, the principal sort of branch of government that isn't number ten was always you know the, the primus inter pares of the of the uh, of the ministers with the foreign secretary. You know there are various ways of doing this, and none of them is right, and none of them is wrong. You've just got to choose one way of doing it and and, and find a way of bringing this together. I mean, more generally, what's your impression of Boris Johnson as PM so far. How do you think he's different to the last ten years? Well, I have to say, there's several things have been, you know, really impressive. Actually, you know, the way he's handled the United States has been really impressive. And I don't just mean on Huawei. And and, and Paul made a very good point there. But you know, if you look at the way he handled Iran and the um, attack on uh, Soleimani in Baghdad, he managed to do what I think is the right thing, which is to de-escalate a situation. Uh, he managed to not insert himself into a uh, an issue that, although, of course, the UK has major interests in, was not fundamentally about us. He managed to remain uh, supportive of an ally uh, without being critical of an action or, or indeed endorsing an action. Uh, and he managed to bring together the E3, a European uh, grouping, to seek to have influence amongst allies and partners in the Middle East. I thought, I thought that was actually a remarkable achievement uh, and, and one that some previous prime ministers would have found difficult to do because they 
would have inserted themselves into the debate in some way. And so staying back was, I think, very important. I think the second thing, or oh, sorry, another thing that he's done very well, is um, again handling the United States, but actually also handling other countries too, the G7. You know, and that G- first G7 uh, meeting in Biarritz went extremely well. And, it, you know, it's, uh, it's not nothing to get seven people who all have national interests to respond to who all have different domestic pressures, competing domestic pressures, to cooperate in a collegiate fashion. That isn't easy. Uh, and so that is, you know, that's not nothing. That's a real skill. And it, you know, it reminds me of what I said when people were trying to get me to be naughty during the leadership election. Uh, and people said, well, you know, you were critical of him as foreign secretary. Um, you know, surely you're going to be critical now. Well, no, the reason I'm not critical now is because the difference between being Prime Minister and, and being Foreign Secretary is night and day. These are very, very different jobs. And being good at one doesn't mean you're going to be good at the other or vice versa. And what's quite clear is he is he's allowing his ministers to get on with it, with their responsibilities. You know, Dom Raab did well in that uh, uh, Iran incident as well. And uh, Dom Raab, I saw speaking this morning to Secretary of State Pompeo. And it's quite clear that you know, empowering ministers, empowering the Foreign Secretary, empowering Ben Wallace as Defence Secretary to speak uh, on behalf of the government has allowed him to have the strategic uh, gap that he needs in order to make sure that um, the UK has the correct level of sort of response and influence. And I think that's been, to many, let's be blunt, to many of us, that's been surprising, but really successful. (laughs) <laughs> that's a fair way of putting it surprising <laughs> given this history at the front office well, but as I say it's a very very different job and it's quite clear that you know being Prime Minister appears to suit him much better well is it, it's, to, to play devil's advocate isn't that partly because actually as PM you can hover above things a lot more easily you don't necessarily he actually wants to you, you delegate can, but not all Prime Ministers no, they do they don't that's true but given that he as Foreign Secretary, didn't really grip a lot of issues, and, and you've been very clear on the history of that, that, that tenure. My role as Chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee is to hold the Foreign Secretary yeah. and the Foreign Office to account. So that, you know, yeah. that is kind of the job, right? No, so, I agree. But what's interesting is that he, he couldn't get away with it as Foreign Secretary. He couldn't float above it. He had to be Foreign Secretary. An interesting thing here is... He literally had to do his job. Yeah, <laughs> here he can try and model a brand new kind of premiership where he delegates more... Just as he did famously at City Hall, we delegated a lot. And the, but there comes a point where, as Prime Minister, you really do have to be Prime Minister and grip some things. And I think a lot of people were surprised that over, over Christmas that you know he didn't make the statement to the House on Soleimani. You know, with British troops in the in region um, not being you consulted see, I, about I, beforehand. You see, I, don't, I don't agree with you there. And the reason I don't agree with you is because. What's he going to say that's prime ministerial as opposed to defence secretary level? N- not much is the answer. I know, but <laughs> British troops in theatre. Yeah, that's why not have been told about it. No, no, as I'm, prime minister, surely you would have then had... well, as defence secretary. I mean, you know, you see, I, I I understand why you're making the point, but it's it's really really easy to escalate things. It's really hard to ratchet down, right. and and if you go straight in at prime ministerial level where do you go from there you know now actually this could have gone much worse we know that this could have escalated it could have gone much worse but had we already gone in at prime minister where would you escalate from there well nowhere there is nowhere to escalate unless 
who were expecting Her Majesty to get involved. But I mean, you know, so engaging at the appropriate level at the appropriate time reminds me of a, the best piece of advice I was ever given in, in the army when I became military assistant to the chief of the defence staff. A general came past me and said, uh, do your job. And I sort of smiled and didn't think much of it. And he went, no, 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 I mean this. Do your job. Don't do your boss's job and don't do your subordinate's job. Do your job. Because so many people try to effectively second-guess their boss or put a long screwdriver down into their subordinates and do their job. It's really hard just to do the job you have got. And I think that's, you know, that is actually really important. And it's just as important whether you're Prime Minister or Defence Secretary or indeed a junior officer, you know, because getting that right frees everybody to have the ability to have the strategic depth to know what they're doing. So you've been pleasantly surprised so far by... Yeah, I'm very friends. pleasantly surprised. And, you know, and your, your argument about plans, I'm afraid, I'm, I don't quite buy. And the reason I don't quite buy it is because just because we haven't heard of something doesn't mean it's not happening. Well, I'm, I'm impressed by your faith there. Well, I'm, there's two things that have struck me, and the first we've spoken about, and the second is this is a much more disciplined government than one that we have been used to for the last four years. What that will mean, I don't know. Whether that means that actually we're not going to have the internal dissent that allows for the best ideas, or whether that means that we're going to have a much better organisation that's able to deliver together, I don't know. It's too early to tell. But it is quite something that this is a much more disciplined government than we've seen for the last three or four years. You wish you'd voted for him instead of Michael Gove? Uh, I'm very pleased to have supported the person I thought was the best candidate. I'm also very pleased if I'm proved wrong. I always want the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom to succeed, whoever they are. Right, we must move on. It's quiz. time for the quiz. Quiz. Yeah, which the quiz. is obviously all about the EU and Britain's relationship with it. Uh, <laughs> just shout the answer if you know it. Tom's doing a face. Tom's but... bound to know more than oh, we God. do. <laughs> I'm so bad at quizzes. It's only three questions. It will, it'll be over very quickly, Tom, like taking a plaster off. Um, how many days has it been since... Polls closed in the EU referendum of 2016. How many days? Yeah. That's a maths question. Nearly yeah. 1,050 oh days. Oh, my God. Something like what he said. <laughs> <laughs> I've got no idea. So it's, what, three, three and a half years? So whatever that is. Mental arithmetic, guys. Is I it, think 1,100 days. Cummings in the 1,100 days. Maths now. Come on. 1,100 days. 1,200 days, I don't know. Uh, Tom's closer, so you get the point of that. It's 1,315. There you go. Uh, question number two. Which countries joined the EU along with Britain, which was then the EC, in 1973? Ireland did. That's one. Very good. Did Greece join at the same time? No, there's one other. Oh, crikey. Would it be a Scandi country? Uh, Denmark. Yes, Tom. There you go. 2-0 up already in unassailable lead. This is a fun one. Uh, in a 1984 episode of the TV show Yes, Minister... The European Commission wanted to rename the humble British sausage, but what did they want to call it, and why? Oh God! It was like the grease tube or something. It was it was something pretty vile. Oh my God! <laughs> I've it got had no slight idea. Percentage too much of animal fat or something. <laughs> it was, it's yeah, pr- 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 pretty close. I'll give you a point for that. It was the emulsified high fat offal tube, <laughs> <laughs> uh, on account of it not containing enough meat. 
which has then become known as the Euro Sausage. <laughs> There's a great Wikipedia page actually called Euro Myths. I urge you all to take a look at it. Before Brilliant. We, <laughs> before we leave. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels so you can catch us every Thursday. And be sure to get your daily dose of the latest politics news by signing up to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone or follow the link in the episode notes. We'll just leave you with Nigel Farage's farewell to the European Parliament after 21 years getting a Brussels salary as an MEP. I know you want to ban our national flags, but we're going to wave you goodbye and we'll look forward in the future to working with you as sovereign... If you disobey the rules, you get cut off. Could we please remove the flags? <laughs> Mr. Farage, could we remove the flags, please? It's all over. Finished. It's gone. Could I please ask for quiet? <laughs> Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.